Good evening, Hope Reform Baptist Church. Great to see you all. Open up your Bibles to the Song of Solomon's chapter 6. We're going to finish off this uh, book tonight. You're going to have to bear with me. We were, we were going to do two more weeks, but uh, uh, there's just too many guys asking me uh, for money for rings and uh, whether I do their weddings and stuff. So we're going to cut it short. And uh, No, no, no. But it just wasn't going to quite stretch out to two sermons. We're going to kick it uh, home tonight and finish off. And really what we're doing tonight is just a matter of uh, a matter of foundations. Uh, a marriage is like, is like a house. You can have houses in good shape and houses in very poor shape. You can have a big houses, small houses, and they change over the years as you add a wing or do some renos and your wife decides she doesn't like red anymore, she wants blue, etc., etc., etc. You move houses, they relocate, but they also go through many, many seasons. And uh, to use Jesus' language, only those houses built upon the rock of obedience to his word will last. Uh, Marriage is that way. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. A wise man. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on top of sand. Rain is going to fall, floods will come, wind will blow, and it will batter against your marriage. And the only thing that can hold a marriage house firm is good foundations. That is, the foundations of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Human wisdom, pop psychology, self-help, sinful practices, uh, those things are going to be no firm foundation when the storms of life actually hit your marriage. Uh, The lordship of Christ and his commands are what will help you. But notice it is not just knowing his commands. Jesus says, if you hear my words, but then don't put them into practice, you are still the fool building on Sand, And so it is. Marriages need not just theology, but the devotion to God's word, obedience to his commands. That brings 100% success rate. I've never read a marriage book. Well, that's true enough. I've, I've never read a marriage book that says, which is also true, uh, that, that can claim or that can promise, there's no wedding center, marriage seminar out there that can promise 100% proof rate with their systems. Jesus does. Jesus can. The, the Bible does. 100% of the time, dual devotion from, from husband and wife, both devoted to the word of God and, and obeying it, it will be 100% success rate. Not, not daisies and sunshine every day, but 100% success rate. Those who say I do will, will, will stay faithful until they die. Now, where marriages fail, it's where either one or both parties have veered from strict obedience to Jesus' wonderful life-giving commands. That, that's simply how it goes. So, so in our uh, t- time tonight, we're just going to go to foundations and just talk about what, what foundations of a good marriage needs to have in it in order to uh, establish a long-lasting, heritage, colonial, beautiful, white, picket fence, green yard, lots of Christmas lights at Christmas time, pool out the back for the grandkids kind of house, kind of marriage. That's what you, you might live in a shed, but if your marriage can be like that amazing estate, that's what we're aiming for, Amen. Now, some of us are not married, and that's okay. The Lord bless you and keep you. But, but while you, you don't have a house, you don't have walls up yet, your marriage is not even built, but you can start. In fact, you must start. I'll say even further. You have started, whether you realize it or not, you have started pouring your foundations. 
Your character and your relationship with God is the foundation that your marriage will be built upon in the future. And therefore, you are in the foundation setting, establishing, and pouring a stage of building your marriage for the future. Maybe you haven't even met your spouse yet. That's fine. But you can be setting your foundation. So... Foundations for the single, the almost married, the newly married, the happy married, the used to be happy married, and the struggling marriages are all here. So go to chapter 6 of the book of Song of Solomons. When did last, last week, didn't we, on a bit of a cliffhanger after their conflict? This is the first like sense or scene of conflict in the, in the relationship between the Shulamite poor uh, uh, peasant, uh, agri- a rural country gal, uh, and the, the, the king of Israel, Solomon. We had this chapter where, where he came home and she was giving him the cold shoulder because she was too cold and too tired and didn't want to be a... Be a she, didn't, not, she didn't even want to let him into the room. She had locked him outside and then he, he went for, he went walkabouts. He went, okay, well, uh, off he went and he had time on his own and then she ran into some friends and she had all sorts of shame come upon her for her decisions and she came to a, a point of regret and confession and guilt and she decided, I'm, I'm going to fix things up with my husband. This is my fault. And, 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 and then she recites to herself. Remember, ladies, we said this is a good practice for you to yourself even before you say it to your husband is remember and recite to yourself why it is that you fell in love with him in the first place. The amazing things about him. She mentioned a body of ivory and legs of stone and arms of gold and all of that sort of thing. He's, he's, a, he's a tanked dude. But anyway, in verse 2, <coughs> sorry, verse 1 of chapter 6, the ladies, the, the backup dancers, the gospel singers the chorus, they, they ask her. They say, oh Shulamite woman, oh, 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 oh lady, wife, where has your beloved gone? Oh most beautiful among women, where has your beloved turned that we may seek him for you? And she says in verse 2 and 3, pretty obvious answer. It's as if she's coming to her senses and she's realizing. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. And my, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, he grazes among the lilies. All of this garden language has been the language of love and romance, sometimes sexual intimacy, but since they're physically very obviously apart at the moment, what she's probably saying is, whether there's a literal garden or whether there's just somewhere where their love usually flows, she's just saying to herself, who am I kidding? Why am I running around the city looking for my husband, making all this drama, getting myself into trouble, asking all these ladies for advice that they don't really know how to... What am I doing? I know where my husband is. He's going to be on the back porch. He's probably got a tea ready for me. He's going to have just the perfect amount of sugar. He's going to be on the rocking chair. What am I doing? Why am I running around and making a big deal out of this, which is really quite a simple solution? I'm just going to go to my beloved. I know where he is. I know where he's waiting for me. I know that he's ready to receive me and my apology. And the principle here, one of the foundations for marriage is conflict resolution is almost always more simple than we are letting it be. It is almost always more simple than we would let it be. It almost always has an extremely simple solution. Not easy, but simple. The difficult part comes in the swallowing pride, having the conversation, the difficulty of the confession, the owning the sin, the, the acknowledging of guilt and all of that. That's where the difficult part comes in, but it's pretty easy to know the solution. We just usually complicate it. I, I, 
probably about a ballpark, 50 to 60% of the times that I counsel husbands who come and sit down with me and go, I need marriage is just on the rocks, we're in the seas, we're, there's a tempest, there's these problems going on. Uh, and, you know, they, they'll just recite to me what, they know what's going on, they know what sin they've committed, they know how they've been, they know what they need to do, but they just can't, can't fix things with the wife. And, and my usual question is, that's so insightful, you know, we'll talk a bit, you know, have you said any of this to her? And usually it's, no, no, you know how she gets, you know. Okay, well, here's your solution. Just go home, and exactly as you just practiced on me, just say all that to her. I bet she'll be keen to listen. And then I don't hear from them again, and they're perfectly fine. Usually, that's the case, and it's often the same with gals, and she's acknowledging it right here. Here I am running around the city, and they go, where's your husband? And she goes, who am I kidding? He's waiting for me. I know what needs to, I need to go, I need to have a conversation, I'm going to find him in the garden of love, and everything will be perfectly fine. So conflict resolution, foundation number one, is always easier or simpler than we usually make it out to be. The second thing is that love builds up. Love, this is a foundation for marriage. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we see in this section from verse 4 onwards to about verse 10, the husband's words affirm and build up affectionately his wife, right? You see that she comes back and they're together again and his first words are not, oh, here she comes, right? The trouble, oh, now you want to spend time together, baby. He He doesn't rub her face in the issue that they've had. He doesn't lay blame on her. He's willing and uh, very keen to forgive. Uh, He doesn't make her grovel. He embraces her probably bodily, but also with words. And that's what we see in the book. So verse 4 says, you are beautiful as Terzah, my love. That's just a place in Israel. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. You might, ladies, say at this point, you've already used these compliments. This is a quote from chapter 2. Get over it. Guys only have so many lines. Please bear with us. Uh, your, verse, verse 7, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother who put, who bore, uh, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, Awesome as an army with banners. He starts using his words. Uh, he's kind of copywriting himself and, and uh, copy and pasting, but that's okay. But he, 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 he compliments, he embraces his wife with, with words. And see how he actually, I think this is because this is in, in, in a turn of scenes when she comes to him at the, uh, in resolution. So there's probably confession and apology and she's coming to him and admitting wrong and, and reaffirming love. And it's probably in that context that he looks at her and compliments first her character. So you'll see in verse 4, he says, you are beautiful, awesome as army with banners. That word awesome could otherwise be translated formidable, like an like like ancient doors or big walls around a city. You are formidable. And then he says, turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. 
That, that he is seeing in her character, her willingness to apologize, her openness in, in resolution, uh, conflict resolution, a strength, a real, valuable, feminine strength. And, and what we see from this wonderful Shulamite woman, at the beginning of the book, she's quite weak and timid and embarrassed of her dark skin and other things like that. By the end of the book, she's pictured more and more strong and formidable, and that's coming from the fountain of her husband's love. And so a woman can be strong. Feminine strength can be shown in different ways. If, if she has strength, which Genesis 3 talks about in the curse, if she has a strength that is against her husband's strength, then she is headstrong, she is loud, she is a, a nagger or a controller, she is bitter. The Proverbs say she is annoying. In modern terms, we would call this a feminist, a strength that to be strong needs to be against husband's strength. It's weakness to be in submission. It's weakness to be under headship. That's, that's uh, uh, against her husband's strength. Or if her strength, or if she is a victim of her husband's strength, then she's been, as the weaker vessel, brutalized and victimized and she's, she's now timid and she's fragile and she's fractured and she's tattered because his strength, which should have strengthened and protected her, has been in fact used so uh, uh, against her. But strength of a woman, feminine strength, that comes from her husband's strength is not headstrong but heartstrong, is very confident Formidable in the language of verse 4. She is the Proverbs 31 woman, which is why verse 10 then says, you are, you are fair like the moon, but you are as blazing as the sun. You, you're fair and white and gentle and romantic, but you also have this, this UV ray fierceness and heat in your eyes of strength. He, he says, you are like an army with banners. You are, verse 10, what does he, what does he say? Awesome as an army with banners. So, so that's what he's complimenting about her. His love is building her up and strengthening her with his words. So verse 5 says, look away from me. You overwhelm me. You're, you're, you're pushing me back on my, uh, on my back. Uh, he loves this beautiful, strong, powerful, sexy look in her eyes. In verse 8 and 9, he says, there's just none to compare. In other cities or other, other kingdoms, the queens, the concubines, the ladies of the night, none of them compare with you. In your own family, no one compares with you. There's no other daughter that your mother can compare you to. You're one of a kind, he says to her. And look at verse 11 and 12, where we see the effect that it had on her. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Now, all this is language for, again, a, a kind of poetic, I'm going back to the garden. I'm going to take my husband in hand, and we're going to walk to the center of the garden, where, and, which is like the, the picture of intimacy in their marriage. He says, your words worked, let's go back to our room. She says in verse 12, before I was aware, I was, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, the prince. It's as if she's saying, he, he was talking and I, I stopped hearing what he was saying. He's just making my heart throb. My heart was like on a chariot. Maybe some of you have been in a friend's uh, Tesla or like a V8 
with like a real man and with petrol or diesel and, and they just floor it and they open it up and your gut just goes back into the back seat. That's what she feels like. She's just in the chariot flying down the king's highway. And she goes, this is how I feel with my husband again. And we're running, racing, chasing, sprinting 100 miles an hour to the center of the garden. In other words, they ran back up to their room and they slammed shut the doors, away from their friends. So the ladies are down there who just helped her through her whole conflict and all of her difficulty. They're back down, left alone, and the gospel singers say, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. And then the husband says, no, thank you, go away. So there's our first two foundations. Uh, Conflict resolution is usually more simple then we are letting it be. Secondly, that love affirms and builds up. And thirdly, we're going to see, this one will blow you apart, genders are different and work differently. All right? Are we good with that? Genders are very, I know that needs to be said in this day and age, but even in the church, men and women need to know we are different And we work differently. So not only biblically do we see that in the church there's gender roles and in society there should be distinctions of roles and in the family there's husband's headship, female uh, wife's submission. But even more than that, biologically and therefore sexually, men and women are planets apart. Galaxies apart. If there's a multiverse, which there's not. If there was, we'd be universes apart, dimensions apart in terms of how we work most of the time or naturally, biologically. Now, you might think, is this really one of the big profound foundations to build your marriage upon? Yes, yes it is. It, uh, as we come to the book of Song of Solomons, we, we sort of, we've learned, haven't we? I, I bet you've probably learned just implicitly, oh, this is why I've never heard a sermon series on the Song of Solomons before, because it's, well, it's raunchy. Like, most pastors have to go and submit themselves for review after they've preached this book and uh, see whether they won't get themselves fired. It's a, it's a raunchy book. There's lots in here. Uh, and, and the parts of the Bible, this is what I've learned, the parts of the Bible that are least touched are always least touched for a reason. It's because there's something in there that we're uncomfortable with and, we, and, and, and therefore those parts of the Bible that are the least touched probably need to be poked, prodded and uncovered the most in our day and age. And, and, and therefore the, the parts of the Bible that make us, you and me, the most uncomfortable are probably the parts we need to read again and again and again and that's true of the Song of Solomons. That, that we get to this section, and I'm about to read verse 13, and you'll see why I'm giving it this lengthy, reasonable, justifying on-ramp, is that men and women are very different. And here's the, the big point. Men are very, very, very... What do you think I would say next? I'm sure there's a hundred things you get. Very visual. Very visual. And 99% of the time, the wife will never, ever be as visually... We could say aroused or visually uh, 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 sexual as the husband is. It is, a, it is part of the way that God designed man, like, as in males. Uh, it is instructive or interesting that in Genesis, when God brings Eve to, to, to Adam, it's, it's, it's going to sound like I'm making a joke. She, she gets brought to him, and before he hears her say anything, 
Before he meets her or gets to know her personality, he says, good. Flesh, ding. Body structure, great. Okay? That was the first visually. But it's not just that he was being carnal. He wasn't just saying, Lord, could you take her voice box out and uh, remove her, her, her functional reasoning? I'm fine with the body. He wasn't doing that. But God has made men to be, even biologically, the brain science sort of backs this up, is that in the, in the eyes, the husband takes in a lot of stimulus. So he wasn't just saying, she looks good, that'll be fine. He's saying, oh, eyes like mine. She can see this garden like I see. Oh, she's got lips and a, and a face like mine. I can communicate with her probably in ways that I can't with the lion or the chimpanzee. Oh, she's got a body like mine, but noticeably different. This is going to mean that there's sexual union that I've been watching the animals have fun with and I've been sitting here on my own. She's got hands like mine. She can help me with my mission. She's got feet like mine. She can walk up to the meeting place of God with me. So visually he saw her and, and inwardly he knew a thousand things about her. That's true of guys. God has geared us. Now, of course, it's broken and gone wrong in the fall. But God has geared men to be very, very visual. And a good wife understands this. Here's why I'm saying this. Verse 13, the end of verse 13, he starts speaking. And in the ESV, he says, why should you look upon the Shulamite? In other versions, it's more of a how or a wonder. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a rebuke saying, don't do it. It's more him saying, wow, look at the... Look at the value of doing this. Check out the enjoyment of this. He says, why should we look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance between two armies? Now, does that sound erotic? Not at all. The Hebrew is, is the dance of Mahanaim. And the dance of Mahanaim was, was after an army has won and after the victory has been established, the, the camps would all set up and the, the young women would all come out and they would do... I guess modern day version would be like a conga line or maybe a hucker at a wedding, something like that, that all the ladies come out and they do all of the celebratory dances. Now, it wasn't erotic. It was humble and modest, but it was beautiful and it was feminine. And all the men would, would cheer and, and it was an act of celebration. And what is happening here is that the, 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 the dance of, of Mahanaim or the dance of the two armies is being done for the husband by the wife. Right? So, some commentators here read a very explicit reference to a striptease and a dance for her husband. I say, maybe. I say, the Bible, this book of the Bible is intentionally written poetically so that it could mean this, it could be that, but there is one definite thing coming through. Now, what is definitely coming through is the fact that she is intentionally holding his visual attention. That's what she's doing. She gets his attention, she keeps it, she enjoys it, and then she lets him enjoy her visual, his visual uh, show that is going on in the beauty of his wife. So men are visual, they are aroused visually. Let me give you four principle, five principles for wives thinking about husbands. A million books have been written trying to help wives understand husbands. I doubt I'll, I'll, I'll uh, put the nail in the coffin, but... Let me try and help. Four things about your husband. As a man, he notices visually everything about beauty. There's a pretty gal in the room, he already knows. There's a girl with a really bright red dress and lots of lipstick that sat four rows behind you in the cinema. He noticed when he walked in. Not because he was sitting there creeping around, perving and looking. He just noticed because God gave him that ticker in his brain that notices visually things that other girls have to look intentionally to see. 
So he notices everything. Secondly, he is constantly avoiding said visuals because of the bombardment of the world that we're in. We're not in a modest biblical culture. We're in, a, we're in an underwear on the buses and pornographic things popping up all over the, the internet and, and you can't even have a, a social media account without a thousand temptations flying across your screen every day. So, so we're in a world that is, and then you just go to the shops and apparently now a bralette is a shirt, apparently. So, so welcome to 2023 with all of our progress. And, and so guys are constantly bombarded with visual stimuli and therefore he is constantly having to avoid that. Thirdly, because he has fallen, he is sinning more than he wishes. So there's no silly women sitting in here thinking, not my husband, he would never look at another woman. Till you're at his funeral, that's not true. He will, he has, probably has today. Let me just say that. Because he's more sinful than he wishes he was. You've probably coveted more than him today, probably, but he's probably lusted more than you today. That's just how it works. And so, guys, I'm very glad to sort of uh, pull the wool off your wife's eyes right now if, you've been, uh, keep, if you have not broached this conversation. But men do sin more than they wish because they're fallen. Fourthly, they are easily, this comes back to one of the main points, easily aroused visually. So, so people say women are like a crock pot. They take 24 hours preparation, about a thousand different spices in the perfect mixture. Men are like microwaves. They can go from head in work to immediately ready to have intercourse in about 12 seconds max. So, so, and mostly that happens visually. So in other words, if we put all this together, wives might be thinking, are you telling me that men are walking around, even Christian men who want to honor the Lord, with a constant recognition of everything they need to be averting, and they're dodging things like Neo from the Matrix, and anything, any one of those things that gets through could get them to, to an illicit sexual fantasy or thought within seconds? Yes. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. And the fifth principle is that as a wife, you can help. You can help massively. And the secret is in verse 13, the dance of the Mahanaim. Gladly, intentionally get your husband's attention with your body. Now, this comes down to the part of uh, 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 really practical parts of marriage counseling, which is that you need to know how the different genders work, both, both men and women. This means, first of all, you need to know how your gender works. Some women have no clue how women hormones work, and you're just... You're, you are on the back of a Mustang that has been shot with adrenaline and slapped on the behind and now is running through the Rocky Mountains. That's you. That's you. If you're a woman and you don't, haven't been explained to, understood, studied how the hormonal cycle of a woman works, you have moments left to live. Okay, you are probably driving yourself crazy and maybe no one's loved you enough to tell you this right now, but God really has designed you with a, with a flaring hormonal system, but that's fine because if you know it, then you can get on top of it and you can also explain it to your husband and the fights can get less extreme in your house, okay? You need also to know not only how you work, how your makeup, uh, your, your own makeup works, your bio biology works, your hormones works, but then you need to be willing to explain it to the other person who has zero experience being your gender. I hope but biblical marriages are supposed to have never been a woman or a man and just be the same thing from birth to death, okay? Now, they have no clue what it is like to be your gender. 
no clue. Maybe they grew up with six sisters and they're a dude. They still have no clue. So there is no frame of reference for the other person to understand the experiences of your gender unless you, God's helper to them of either gender, to the husband or the wife, you help each other explain. And then here's the other important bit. You need to be willing to hear graciously. So husbands, don't listen and go, you think that? You feel that? You're crazy, right? Women, don't, hear, don't listen to your husband's explaining how his hormonal uh, libido system works and go, you're a pervert, you're disgusting, you're a pig, you're filthy. Listen to each other with grace and peace and willingness to help each other. So women, that means uh, on, maybe on the way home tonight, not if you have kids in the car, but when you get alone, ask your husband about his visual uh, about his battle with lust and how his visual spiritual life is going and ask him what you could do to help. Men, ask your wife what tempts her, what stokes up her desires, what visual, emotional, music, poetry, gifts, words, things about hormonal cycle and then listen and just there's no shame in writing everything down and then go on to Wikipedia to find out what she just said. There's no shame. But First Peter 3 says we should live with our wives with knowledge and understanding. If you don't know about how they, how they work, you will not be able to bear with them and help them and lead them and guide them. So, and then you ask, what can I do better to help you as your husband in this way? Now, women, this means you understand that men, being visual, look at what Sol- happens with Solomon in verse 13. He's looking upon his Shulamite wife who's doing the dance of the two armies. And then chapter 7 onwards, he starts describing what he sees in this dance of the Mahanaim. And he starts at her toes and he slowly works all the way up the contours of her body to her hair. Instead of going from hair downwards this time, he goes toes upwards. So women, this means... Uh, uh, you would need to understand your husband is very visual and you need to be comfortable with him visually enjoying you. A lot of women are very uncomfortable with this. Oh, he's, he's just being carnal. This is uncomfortable. My eyes are up here, things like that. So look at what happens in chapter 7. This is just to remind you, God breathed scripture. I didn't write it, didn't come up with it, but I love that it's in here. Amen? Right? Husbands, wives, James says, don't just read, but do the Bible. All right? You go home tonight, you read. How many marriages would just take 1,000 steps forward if you just went and read with a glass of your favorite drink, whatever? I just read the Song of Solomon's Mortier. Just do some Bible study. There's my, there's my pastorly exhortation to you. But here's what he says to her. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. All right, women, biblical evidence. You don't need expensive shoes. And if you want them, they're for you. Your husband, you could be wearing strings around your feet, which is literally what their sandals were, and he'll dig it. So, uh, how beautiful are your feet in thongs, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the works of a master hand. So he likes her curvy thighs. Listen to what he says next. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. This is probably, almost certainly, a reference not to her belly button, but a more intimate part of her body. Uh, but, but in the language of Song of Solomon, it doesn't get explicit and nasty. He gets poetic and moves on and allows the unpresentable parts to be unpresented explicitly. He says, 
Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now, ladies, do you like circular round language when a man is, is complimenting your midsection? Probably not. We're in the day when the standard of beauty is near to starvation and death. And in their day, when many people did starve and die, men would look at a woman and go, she looks like she can sustain her life and a baby's life. That's good. So standard of beauty in their day is he's looking and he says, your belly is like a heap of wheat. Now, if you visualize how you go and you collect all these big, tall heaps of wheat from the, from the, uh, uh, the, the yard and they tie them down and they tie them in the middle, what shape does it make? Makes fluffy at the top, gathered in the middle, and fluffy down at the bottom again. He's, he's giving us the universal sort of curves uh, 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 visual for himself. That's what your belly is like. Your waist is tiny, but everything else is, is an XL. And he says uh, in verse 3, uh, Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. Maybe she, was, she felt self-conscious about the size of her nose. And he says, I love it, babe. It's the first thing I get up and see in the morning. It's beautiful. <laughs> I can get behind it at the beach and the sun. I don't know. He says, I love your nose, babe. You've got a cute nose, which it looks towards Damascus, right? I can tell. I can navigate with it, baby. It's good. It's a sundial. You look up and I can tell the time. I love your nose. Uh, your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are, are purple. A king is held captive in the trestles. So he's probably looking at her, and she has got all this nicer uh, uh, plaited hair, and he's saying, oh, it's like rope that has bound me up in the, in the jail of your love, and he loves it. He says, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. He is, a, he is an energetic man who loves his wife. He says, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and the mouth, your mouth like the best wine. So, so that he's enjoying her body and saying, as he's standing back and watching her, dance, move, undress, whatever it is. He's visually engaged and she's happy to have his attention. She's not embarrassed or drawn back. She didn't draw the curtains and say, go away, perv, leave me alone. Uh, she, she allows him to look and he enjoys that. Uh, in verse 6 to 9, though, what he's saying there is, I'm not happy to watch and be captivated and think about you anymore. I want to get physical. That's an old love song. I want to get physical now. So he wants to engage. He wants to touch, enjoy, and consummate their love. Because, we'll come back to this, as designed by God, the husband is enraptured into a sexual love of his wife largely through visual stimuli. Largely through the eyes, the husband is drawn into deeper and deeper love and engagement. And then look at what she says in verse 9, the end of verse 9. It goes down smoothly for my beloved. She's got some good lines. It goes down smoothly for my beloved guiding over lips and teeth. So he just said, your lips are like wine. And she goes, well, if you like wine, drink the whole bottle, baby. Come on. And so she's, she's like engaging. She's responding. She's inviting him to come and enjoy her love. So she, he, she does not hear get embarrassed and pull away and, 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 uh, uh, and, and despise his attention. She knows this is how God made men, 
The world has fallen, and he's going to be constantly bombarded by temptation from elsewhere. I've already sinned in chapter 5 by brushing him off and locking him out of the house. Now I'm going, to, I'm going to reverse all of this. The coldness is gone. She's engaged. They're back in sync. The timing is all right. And she says, I, if your eyes are built to lock onto beauty. I am your standard of beauty as your wife, so look at me. I'm going to... And all of the things she felt maybe self-conscious about, he loves and he loves and he adores and he says so. So this is the fourth principle. First, conflict resolution is usually pretty simple. Secondly, love builds up. Thirdly, men and women are very different and work differently. Fourthly, though, work in complement. This is just the second half of the third one, really. But work in Since men and women are different... Don't just acknowledge that and know that, but actually work that way in the bedroom and in all of life. So husband, we talk here from the Bible about, about husband's headship, wife's submission. But that's not only in matters of authority, it's also true in the shape that romance takes in your marriage. Which means that in love, you need to work in complementarity so that, the, so that men initiate Men initiate, and women, the wives, respond. Okay, so men, as husbands, you are the leader. You need to be confident, and you need to be decisive. Right? Not, not authoritative and hand down rules and precepts, but in the romantic side of marriage, you need to be decisive. She has a lower drive than you. She is less visual than you. Like we said, women are slow cookers. Men are microwaves. Male hormones peak in moments. Women... Months, hormonal, uh, 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 well, weeks, a whole month to go through the hormonal cycle. So it needs to be more intentional and slow. If you want to be intimate at 11, you can't start at 10.59. Got to start at about 5.30 p.m. when you come home from work. Oh, your belly is like a gathered heap of wheat and things like that. <clears throat> so foresight. Now, now, women, the rule here is that women need to respond if, if, you, if you have a, a, a biblically loving, affectionate, gentle husband who's, who's making uh, initiations, then that means you can, it doesn't mean you never initiate. He'll love that. Doesn't mean, I mean, she did, chapter one, she was all over him. But it doesn't mean you don't initiate, but it means that if you're acknowledging that he's mostly going to do the initiation, that sort of leaves you, most of the time, you can just be active in your responsiveness. It's like a dance, like a good waltz, and he's going to lead, but you, you need to not just slump and let him drag you around. You need to respond like a teammate. So a reminder for you, wives, he has a much higher drive than you by God's design. He is more energetic. He has more testosterone. He, has, he is probably more engaged in touching, more, wants more physical uh, 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 things, usually men. He is more visual all the time. And therefore, you should, knowing all this, be telling yourself and be aware, be sensitive of your own responsiveness. So, so that there is damage to the relationship back in chapter 5 when she coldly rejected him. When he initiated and she coldly rejected. But what it goes back to is that he's visual and she works with that. She doesn't have to buy anything, put on anything. It's free. The outfit that she's wearing is completely free. She was born with this outfit, okay, that she's dancing in in front of him. Because if you haven't picked up on it, it's nothing. She's just in front of her husband. And he says, I love this outfit. It's great. He's extremely excited. And she's willing to accept his visual attention. So that's not carnal. Your husband's love for you visually is not carnal. He's not a pig, right? 
women can sometimes feel like or often say, men just want one thing. Now, biblically, now some men do, of course, but, but biblical husbands who are being discipled by Christ through his word and the Holy Spirit, they don't just want one thing, they want one woman and everything that comes with that. So it's not as if they're trying to get sex through you, it's that a good husband is geared to want you and all of you, and sex is an enormous part of that. So it's not as if there's just one thing on his mind. We read Song of Solomon's, it seems like there's only one thing on her mind the entire time. And when they're not together, she's asking for aphrodisiac fruit to get that thing back on her mind. So that's perfectly fine for that to constantly be bubbling up in their minds. But it's not just that he's got one thing on her mind. It's that he's got one woman on his mind. And he wants all of her. Because that's how covenant marriage works. You might feel like, oh, he just wants my body. No, he wants you. Look, go, think of Adam again. He didn't just see a body and go, that'll do. He saw the body, wanted the woman within that, represented by, radiating from that body, and, but, but I hope she does come with the body, right? He, he didn't want a woman without a body. He wanted the woman with the body, but he wanted the woman, the person, the wife, the helper, the companion, not just that body. Of course, some men need to hear this as a rebuke because that is not true of you. So thinking of responsiveness, instead of my eyes are up here, don't touch me, get your hands off me, you can just throw out a responsive comment. It goes a long way for him to just not get shut down. Throw out a sexy word or two, that's fine. A good husband should be, must be sensitive to bad timing and your emotions and things like that. But a good wife will also be aware of her own responsiveness and how she's contributing to the atmosphere of the loving home. So be complementarians in the bedroom. Look at verse uh, 8, uh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, and two, uh, sorry, verse 11 through to 13 is just more of her responsiveness. This is bound to happen. Verse 11 happens in, at some point in everyone's marriage. She says, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. It's a rule. At some point in your marriage, your wife will ask for a wooden lodge out in the mountains with chickens and goats and cows. Now, if you're lucky, it's a phase. For some of you, it's a lifestyle. And you will have to keep her busy with children and dogs and chickens and other things until you can give that to her. But, but it, it's funny that it's in At some point in every marriage, she says, I sure would love an estate out in the mountains with no neighbors. Anyway, verse 12 says, let us go early to the vineyards and see what the, whether the vines have budded. She's just talking about the fruitfulness of their love. Let's go away together. Let's enjoy each other. Let's go to the garden together. There I will give you my love, verse 13. The mandrakes give forth fragrance. Beside our doors are all choice fruits, right? She's explaining the, the dream house that their marriage looks like. And she goes, we've got this big trellis of mandrakes and figs, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. So she does not reject his visual attention. She embraces it and loves it. Now look at chapter 8. Uh, this shows uh, even more of her exciting responsiveness. Uh, and it, it is mutual. It's going back and forth. She loves his attention. He loves giving it to her. He says, oh, this is going to be weird. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. All right? Weird? 
Why does she wish she was like her brother so she could get? Because she's from Alabama. And, no, because culturally in their day, you can't show public displays of affection romantically. Okay, a, a husband and a wife seeing each other and hugging each other and kissing and her being swept up into his arms, very inappropriate, even for king and queen. However, if you were brother and sister, you could hold hands you could, because you're family. You're the closest you can possibly get without being married. And so it's not romantic, it's familiar. And she's saying, I wish that in public we were brother and sister. Because then I could see anywhere I see you going around in your chariot, I could run up, I could jump in your chariot, I could give you a big hug and a kiss and we could hold hands and I wouldn't get rebuked and I wouldn't get told, hey, that's inappropriate, I want to be with you like that. I I wish I could be uh, uh, giving you attention like this everywhere that we are. I would, I would take you to the house of my mother where she used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. And here she quotes Elvis. Fools rush in. Okay? Wise men say, fools rush in. She goes, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's again coming to this realization. If this is how powerful and overwhelming and amazing love is, you better be careful not to awaken it without God's safeguards of marriage. And then there's verse 5, which no one knows what it means. So let's just read it and move on. Who is it coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Some people think this is a picture of their old age. They're walking together. Some people think, no, no, she's visiting her countryside family up in the north of, of Israel. No one makes any good arguments. It's just weird. Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. The theme seems to be we're visiting my in-laws. And here's all of my, my, my memories from my young childhood or something like that. It's a, it's a bit hard to figure out. But they're being together in more of this nat- nature, beautiful garden language. Now, Verse 6 through 7 gives us principles about love. And at this point in our night, we're sort of transitioning from foundations for married people to get right, and we're reminding unmarried people why she just said what she said. When she said, don't waken this love up until it's ready, until it's time, until it's wise, until he or she is a Christian, until you can move forward to marriage soon, until you have the temptations right, uh, 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 sorry, self-control to be able to deal with these temptations. That's what she's been saying, and we see why in verse 6 through 7. Look, look at what she says about love. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. This tells us love is personal. Love is personal. It's not just, I happen to be here tonight, so I'm the one you love. It's, I am stamped onto your eyeballs. I am branded onto your heart. Set me as a seal like that. She says, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. So love is personal. Love is also jealous. At this point, you might go, wait, is jealousy good or bad? Jealousy is very good in the right degrees and in the right contexts. If he's jealous because there's another guy in your family, that's dumb. If he's jealous because you nodded hello to a neighbor, that's dumb. But if he's jealous because other men are trying to take your affections, that's good. Love is supposed to be jealous and fierce and defensive of the thing that it loves, which is marriage. And the other question we might have at this point is, is she talking about love or marriage? Because some people come to this book and try and find a biblical reason to allow free love. 
You didn't have to be married. These two weren't married. It was all just free love. Everybody loved everyone. Look, love is just fierce and it'll make, make itself out with whoever's around. Not at all. The biblical way to think about love and marriage is that they're just two sides of the same coin. This is what it means to not awaken love without, before it desires. If, if, if love is not in some way connected to marriage, it's unbiblical love. If that's not to say you have to be married to be in love. That would be very Amish. But, but you can have love before you're married, but it's always a pre-married love. You can have love when you're getting married. That's a marriage love. Great. You can have, obviously, you need love after marriage and in your marriage. Good. But you should never have love without any consideration or connection or foresight towards marriage. So this is married love, covenantal love, whether it's starting in your relationship now or whether it's budding into an engagement soon, or whether you're married and going strong, love should be jealous. And therefore, if it's awakened before it's time, it can do damage. Thirdly, she says it is fiery. Look at what she says in the end of verse 6. Its flashes are like flashes of fire, the very flames of God. Love is passionate. It is not easily tamed or controlled. Fire would be no good if it was ice. Biblical love is not bad just because it's extremely passionate and bodily. That's fine. That's good. It it wouldn't be good if it was cold and reasoned. But it does need to to be controlled and set in the covenant bounds of marriage. Otherwise, it will be destruction. It will be fire that lights up houses and farms to flame and turns them to ash. Fourthly, we see that love is persevering. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Its flame can never be put out. Its burning can never be extinguished when it is grounded in God's love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. This applied to married, sexual, romantic love. It, the truth bears out. It is burning beyond all extinguishing. The, the floods of, 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 of memories, experiences, days, there will never be enough. It'll be thirsty for more and more and more dates and holidays and times together and memories to make. The waters of trouble cannot extinguish it. It is immortal as long as the person bearing it has breath sustained by God. But it is also priceless. Look at the end of verse 7. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house... He would be utterly despised. People would call him an idiot if he offered up for love everything he owned. If he would double everything he owns just for his wife, or if he came up to a man with a happy, happily married wife and says, I'll give you everything I have, my father's inheritance, the jaguar, everything, if I can have your wife, that man would be mocked as a fool. You cannot buy love. It's not that you ought not try and buy love. It's literally impossible. This means that if you have a marriage, not that it's perfect, but if you have a marriage where you're friends, you love each other, you encourage each other, you're both Christian, you're both walking with the Lord, and there might be rocky parts, but if you're working together, upward and onward in the cause of Christ, you have that which kings and kingdoms could never buy. You have something that is literally priceless, invaluable. I wonder if you've thanked God for your marriage in light of that in the fact that it is invaluable recently. You cannot buy it. You cannot replace it. It is a gift of God. So give thanks. 
So, so here are the foundations. She, she, we, we've been talking about going back to foundations. I told you, tonight's going to be a little bit longer, so we've just got the rest of chapter 8 to smash out. But, but we've been going back to foundations for married couple. We've, we've looked at love now. It's dangerous nature and why it need not be, it must not be awoken before it is time. But now we go back to her foundations. So look at verse 8 of chapter 8. And this is how Eastern poetry kind of works is that the end usually goes back to the beginning. So, so now that we're going to sort of end this song of songs about marriage and love, she actually takes this uh, flashback to her childhood when she was growing up. This is what she says. Oh, well, actually, it's not just her. It's sort of a black and white film montage of a memory of her growing up on the farm with her brothers so probably her dad is dead because he's never mentioned. She grew up without a dad, protective older brothers named Arthur and Jeremiah, and they're out on the farm, and, and her mum is there. She loves her, but, but no dad. And this is what the brothers say. They say, we have a little sister. She has no breast. So she's preteen. She's not marrying yet. She's not dating yet. What should we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? They're thinking, she's going to get married one day and be spoken for. What should we do for her? How can we help her? How can we build good foundations for her in the future? They say in verse 9, If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. This is one of the foundations that the pre-married need to get in your mind, is chastity. This is what the the last chapter sort of looks back to the beginning of her marriage. And and sort of the poetic uh, cycle is asking you, how can you get the best uh, advantage on having a marriage like this? Well, let's look at her origin story. Let's go and look back at her foundations, what she put in place to be able to be this kind of wife. And do you know what the, the first thing it says is? She was a chaste young woman with a loving family. Not a perfect family. Her dad is gone but a loving family that prioritized chastity. And we see this in their language because they say, if she's a wall or if she's a door. If she's a wall, well, what do walls do? Walls keep people out. If our young, preteen, 12-year-old sister, if she's a wall, she doesn't want guys' attention and she's going to be, you know, she's chaste and she's humble and she's, she's modest, then we'll help her out with that. And we will build her battlements of silver, right? We will put a shield from chin to ankle, so that no one can look at her. That's what we're going to do. She's chased, we will help her. And then it's really funny, they say, now if she's a door, she's open and closing to whoever, you know, dad's gone. Girls without dads can be be very uh, free in their giving of emotional love or looking for attention. They say, if she's like that, if there's a, 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 a horde of men running over the mountain to come and meet her because they're watching her bikini dances on TikTok, if she's a wall then we will go zombie apocalypse mode. And what does it say? We will board up the the door. (laughs) We're just going to get cedar beams, drill huge holes in them and nail them against the door. No more door. You're very welcome. The husbands, the the brothers are doing their job. So that's what they say. They're valuing chastity. Now, while they're valuing chastity, we're also valuing her her own uh, character. It was not as if... she. In other words, she's not a door. Look at the uh, uh, verse 10. It doesn't say, I was a door, and they held me back, and they stopped me from progressing and experiencing my true sexual self. No, she says, well, to my brother's relief, I was a wall. She's saying, I read the Proverbs when I was growing up. 
I read King Solomon's Proverbs, right? I, and, then I, and then I married the author later. <laughs> I was a wise young girl who read my Bible. I saw the value of chastity. I saw the way my dad loved my mum and my mum loved my dad. I was not a door. I was a wall. And then she says, and my breasts are like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. So it's sort of, it, it, it's like you go through this, this time-lapse montage in the movie where she was a preteen saying, I'm happy to be chased. And then immediately, it's the day of her wedding. And she's, she's gone through puberty. And she's a full woman now. And she's looking into her husband's eyes and giving him peace. Why? Because she's a wife or a bride of godly character. This screams against every form of try-before-you-buy mentality. This screams against any form of premarital sex or, or married-in-God's-eyes language that young people love to try and use to justify sexual sin. Instead of thinking of yourself as an Airbnb, different guests every weekend, think of yourself as a garden that needs protection until the one right person is given that entry through the covenant of marriage. And then we see that she is praying for a lover while praying for love not to be awakened. And this is an apple. She's taking her own advice back from the last chapter. Do not awaken love before it desires to be awake, before it can come awake in the right context. And we see this in the fact that she, she was a wall, she was building godly character and chastity, but she was also thinking ahead of the day she would be spoken for and even thinking of giving her husband peace. So, so every young gal should, should be told, uh, uh, you'll probably get married. Let, let's pray for your future husband. What sort of wife do you want to be? Learn from mom. Learn from your older sisters. Maybe your older sisters are bad examples. Hopefully they're really good examples. Uh, uh, but, but think of the future day and pray for it like she is. She's thinking of her fully gone through puberty adult self all the while asking and praying God to keep her chaste and protected. Now, verse 11 and 12 is basically saying, nothing Solomon owns could be given to purchase this wife. Verse 11 and 12, there's, there's some weird Hebrew language in it. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He lets out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. But basically, it seems like she's saying this. You inherited from your father, the king, loads of concubines. Let them go. And he's saying, amen. I don't want them. I don't want lots of women. I want you. He's committing herself to her, and she's receiving that in this poetic way that could be taken lots of different ways. He says, O oh, you who dwell in the gardens with your companions, listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So here we have seen chastity, purity, and holiness upheld. This means that if you are pre-marriage, you need to pour the, the, the foundations of your future home with godliness, with faith in Christ. First of all, the most important thing, you need to be a Christian. If you're going to come here or talk to me or talk to any other person here and want to be a good future spouse, number one, you need to love Jesus, have repented of your sins, worship Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, want to glorify Jesus. That's the most important thing about being a godly future spouse. Second thing is build your life on the rock. That is, know the teachings of Jesus, commit to the teachings of Jesus, go to a local church that teaches about Jesus and grow up into maturity. And then like she does, 
Pray for the right person to come along and pray that God would not awaken your love until that right person comes along. I pray that you're praying for your spouse and your future children's spouse, whether you know them yet or not. God glorifying marriages and love are a vital plan for God's history throughout, throughout humanity. We've seen that week after week in this book. Marriage is just so central. If it goes wrong, so much can go wrong, spiritually, historically, nationally, politic, all of it. But if it's done right, it's this means of grace that brings floods of blessings to the world, not just for the husband and the wife and the children they bear, but also for, for all people around them. It is a blessed thing. However, to sort of burst the beautiful bubble that we've built up over all these weeks, there's something very ironic about verse 11 and 12, where Solomon said, I don't want the concubines. I don't want the other wives. I want just my one. Because this is probably written, well, we don't know when this was written by Solomon, but it was written in a way setting up an ideal. But Solomon never lived up to that ideal. He ended up having 700 legal wives and 300 legal concubines, basically 1,000 sexual partners. Now, maybe some of them he, he didn't even actually physically touch or meet, but many of them he did. We know that they turned him away towards the worship of other gods because their bodies held his attention and distracted him. Whatever happened to the Shulamite gal? We don't know. We're not told in the history of the Old Testament, but the, the feel that we get from reading the Bible in light of Song of Solomon's is that she just disappeared, like a grain of sand on the beach. She just fell in between the cracks of all of his carnal lust and love, and she would have been heartbroken when, when this book hit the, hit, hit the publishing prints. When she saw this bestseller out on the bookshelves, and she bought one, and she read it, she would have been heartbroken remembering, that was about me, and this is now in tatters. But the love of Christ is purer and more unblemished than a thousand of Solomon's loves. Uh, the love of Christ is pictured in the Song of Solomon's, not, not directly and primarily, but in it and through it, we know biblically that, that the picture of marriage is supposed to point us to Jesus, the husband of the church who comes and dies for his bride and never turns aside. The love of Christ is pure and unblemished. It is deeply personal and is sealed upon his heart and his arm. He was punctured in his heart. He was nailed through his arms. He has, bears the emblems of his love towards us as seals upon his heart and his arm. Christ's love is stronger than death and it is more jealous than the grave because it overcame both death and the grave to win us. The love of Christ is passionate. It burns severely against the enemies of the church in order to protect us and bring us home. The love of Jesus cannot be quenched through many, many floods of waters. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The love of Jesus, if somebody was to take all of the wealth in the world, all of the riches of the world, if you were to gain all of the world but lose your soul, what then have you gained? But to gain Jesus Christ, though you have nothing else, no, if, if, if you don't even get married, if you lose even that, if you lose your spouse, or, or if on offer for you is all the sex in the world, all of the relationships in the world, but you do not have Christ's love, you would be utterly despised and scorned as the fool. To have the love of Christ is to have that sweetest, richest, dearest, grandest thing that satisfies the heart more than anything else. And in that, we stand by faith and faith alone. Have you received Jesus Christ? 
Have you received him as Lord who tells you what to do? Have you received him as Savior who forgives you for your sin? Have you received him as, as your soul's husband who promises to you eternal life, inheritance, and forgiveness through him and him alone? You don't have to do anything. You just receive it by faith right now. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for this book that we're wrapping up tonight. We're thankful for what it means for marriages and the hope it holds out for those who have unideal marriages, for those who are struggling and in great difficulty in their, with their spouse or with their, with their family. Lord, we thank you that, that this book shows, shows, shows principles, lays again foundations that we can build upon. We thank you that it reminds us, more importantly, of the love that Christ has for us and how we might pursue Christ-likeness together and thereby see greater righteousness in our marriage. For, even for the unmarried, Lord God, it, it gives so many commands and exhortations of, of what is good and true and beautiful so that we might preserve ourselves as, as chaste future husbands and as, and as chaste future wives so that we can keep pure the marriage bed, as we're commanded in Hebrews 13. We thank you for this book, and I pray that marriages are even more intimate, even more loving, even more joyful around the, around the dinner table, in the bedroom, in every way, Lord God, would, would the homes of this church, would the families of this church be enriched as they look to you. But Father God, more important than any of that, eternally important, would you please save souls? Those who are outside of Jesus, who do not know his love, who are still an enemy, living in sin, living in adultery against the God that made us, suppressing the truth and jumping into iniquity and trespasses. Father God, would you forgive them tonight? Bring them near, wash them clean, put your ring on their finger and give them grace and life. We pray all of this in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.